Acts chapter 20, starting with verse 17. This is a meeting that the Apostle Paul has with the elders from Ephesus. And he recounts his ministry there, there and calls them the faithful service in the future. Acts 20, verse 17. Hear now God's word. For Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, he called for the elders of the church. When they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me of the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, for I do not count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch, and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yet you yourselves know that with these hands I provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I've shown you in every way, by laboring like this, that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words that he spoke, that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. Grass withers in the flower face, but the word of our God abides forever. And let's pray, asking the Lord to teach us what he's Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the word that you have given to us. We know that it is a perfect lamp to our feet, to our paths. We know that your word is true and authoritative, inspired, and inerrant, and infallible. 
pray that you would help us to understand the things we see. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are open and receptive to your message. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Liberty University has a new president, Dondi Costin, and in his months in office, he has given to us frequent reminders of the mission of Liberty University. It is clear that he has studied up on that, and he knows this, and he repeatedly affirms it. I would think that this would be tremendous encouragement to alumnus or alumni of Liberty University to see that focus on mission. And sometimes he would even harken back to things that Jerry Falwell Sr. had said about the mission of the university. Great attention to mission and purpose. I think we see something like that with the Apostle Paul. But there's a great deal of information in the scripture about the church at Ephesus. You see Paul's ministry there over a period of time in Acts 19. And now he calls the elders to himself and he gives them their marching orders, as it were, in Acts 20. And everyone's pretty broken up about this because Paul says, you're not going to see me again. I'm going away. And we're told at the end of the chapter that there's great grief that comes from this announcement. But Paul also writes an epistle to the Ephesians. And he writes two epistles to Timothy, who was serving at Ephesus. So we have a large body of information about the church at Ephesus, the problems that it had, and also Paul's service there. And so when Paul calls these elders together, he tells them many things. Many things about their service and what he had done. But I see in this speech Paul emphasizing certain ministry things. He emphasizes his mission at Ephesus, and he wants the elders there to continue. And so what does Paul consider important? One is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21. Testifying to Jews and also Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now verse 21 emphasizes two things, repentance and faith. We are told that this was part of Paul's formal ministry. It's what he proclaimed in verse 20, what he taught, verse 20, and what he testified to in verse 21. All of these are significant Greek terms, giving us an understanding that this was a huge emphasis of the apostle in Ephesus. Notice well the Trinitarian references in Paul's speech. As he refers repeatedly to God, verse 21, 24, 25, 32, to the Lord Jesus Christ, or the Lord Jesus, verses 21, 24, 35, and to the Holy Spirit, verses 23 and 28. 
And we believe that the gospel and the work of saving people is part of the work of the triune God purpose from all eternity. The gospel message itself is simple. It is a message of salvation through Jesus Christ. Salvation through faith in Jesus Christ because of the perfect sacrifice of Christ. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15 that I deliver to you as of first importance. This is the gospel that I received, that I preached to you, by which you are saved of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was very raised again on the third day. According to the scriptures, this is the gospel and the apostle Paul said that you received it and you believed it and it is through which what you are saved. Or in Romans 5, 8, God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In our own day and time, the gospel message is oftentimes muted or denied or corrupted. There are some liberal churches which deny the gospel, deny the message of redemption, preach a social gospel or advocate for some kind of neighborliness. In some evangelical churches, the gospel is effectively sidelined because of an emphasis upon relational things or experiential and subjective things or a therapeutic message. Faithful churches have always emphasized the Word of God, salvation through Christ, His substitutionary atonement, the importance of faith, and then salvation and life everlasting. Paul's message here, verse 21, emphasizes repentance and faith. This is a consistent theme for the Apostle Paul. It represents two sides of the same gospel coin, if you will. Repentance towards God, verse 21, is found throughout the Bible, although it has less and less attention in our day. After the resurrection, Jesus said that repentance and the remission of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Luke 24, 47. When Peter had that wonderful sermon at Pentecost, he emphasized repentance. Acts 2.38. When the Apostle Paul had that famous sermon at Mars Hill, and he's preaching to all of the Athenian philosophers and leaders, he preached repentance. Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. Paul said, God now commands all men everywhere to repent. That's a pretty dramatic statement. God commands all men everywhere to repent. And it seems to me that you see the free offer of the gospel expressed in this universal call 
to repentance. Ephesus is a really good case study of repentance. And if you go back to chapter 19, you'll see that Ephesus had all kinds of problems of witchcraft and demonism, paganism, and idolatry. If you look at Acts 19, starting with verse 18, we read this. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought all their books together and burned them in the sight of them all. Right? So they're believing in the Lord and they're bringing out all their idolatrous magic, witchcraft stuff, burning up, bringing it all. They're done with it. There used to be a show on, I don't know, maybe it's still on, called Hoarders. And I saw a couple of episodes on, they were just pitiful. It was awful. There was people who had collected so much garbage that their homes and their lives were just overwhelmed by the junk and debris. And the show focused on trying to clean up these houses. And family members would come, there would be an intervention, there would be a dumpster, and they're taking out trash, and some of it was filthy and disgusting, unhealthy, you know, dead cats and dog feces. It was just awful. And I think that's part of the appeal of the show, right? If people really live like this, why? Why would you do this? There's something wrong with this. And I remember this one episode where a lady was sitting there with this rotting pumpkin. This is awful. And they're going to carry the rotting pumpkin out and throw it in the dumpster. And she's torn up about this. You're taking away my rotting pumpkin. And somebody tries to reason with the lady and say, you know, it's just a rotten pumpkin. What's the deal? And she said, but I wanted to save the seeds. <laughs> For some reason, it struck me as being funny. But the sad thing is that we hold on to the junk of life, too. Pet sins, bad habits, secret iniquities, and we don't want to give it up. And even if it comes to the point of giving it up, we still want to keep the seeds. We're all hoarders, and it's disgusting, and it's deadly. Repentance unto life is the saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Jesus Christ doth with great grief and hatred of his sins turn from it unto God with full purpose and endeavor after new obedience. Now that's the definition of repentance that our children learn when they learn the baptism. That repentance, we turn away from our sins and we turn to the Lord because we know He's merciful and we endeavor and purpose to walk in the obedience of the Lord. Well, the gospel includes repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 21. We know that we are saved by grace through faith through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when that poor Philippian jailer in his distress and despair says, what must I do to be saved? The apostles tell him, believe 
in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Paul puts it this way in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. There's something complete about the promise of the gospel that in turning to Jesus Christ through faith, we find salvation and forgiveness of our sins and everlasting life. Or something else that our children learn. They learn that justification is an act of God's free grace, whereby He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. There is nothing that you do to earn or merit your salvation. The Scripture teaches in the Gospel that God is the one who saves, that the work of Christ is credited to our account, that the merits of our Savior is applied to us, and it's received by faith alone. A third gospel theme that Paul mentions in this closing address can be found in verse 28. Verse 28. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The language here is really interesting just in terms of polity or Ecclesiology that the Holy Spirit had made them overseers. We believe that the Lord through His Holy Spirit equips people for office, and Paul reminds them of that to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. And so we believe that Jesus Christ through His sacrifice and the shedding of His blood at Calvary, fully paid the penalty of our sins, and through that act, God purchased us as His own. Paul tells the Corinthian believers that you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify Christ, glorify the Lord. Verse Corinthians. Or as we read in Isaiah 53, concerning Christ and his sacrifice, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. He bore the sins of many. Or listen to what we read at the end of the Bible in Revelation 5. I'll read verse 9. Revelation 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so here's the gospel message, that Jesus Christ went to Calvary his blood was shed and he purchased the people from all over the globe. And the call then is to every person to repent and to have faith in Jesus Christ. 
as we look ahead to celebrating together at the Lord's table, we see a visible reminder of remembrance of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, which was necessary for us to be saved, for Jesus Christ was the perfect Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. First, the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 21. Second, a message of grace in verse 24. But none of these things move me, nor, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now you'll notice that the Apostle Paul mentions this as his mission, as a ministry he received from the Lord Jesus. And he mentions the gospel of grace. Verse 32, he returns to that same theme. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. There's a message of grace. The term the grace of God can refer to a characteristic of God. God shows grace. Mercy, kindness, long-suffering. All of this leads to the scriptural promise of salvation. When Moses said to the Lord, Show me your glory, the Lord passed before him, Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, and said, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression. And so the children of Israel, from their earliest days, learned the message about God who was holy and who would punish them, but they also learned about a God who was merciful and long-suffering and willing to forgive sinners. David puts it this way in Psalm 103. He forgives all your iniquities. As the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Or in the New Testament, John 1.14, we read, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now beyond the characteristic of grace, there is also a famous scripture of sovereign grace referring to the particular redeeming grace of God. And this is a consistent teaching of the Apostle Paul and especially so to the church at Ephesus. The scripture tells us that the Father purposed from all eternity to save a people in Christ. 
Christ Jesus died on the cross, fully satisfying the penalty of sin for his people. The Holy Spirit brings conviction, illuminates our minds, renews our hearts, and draws us to Christ. And so Christians choose to embrace Christ and trust in him, but it's because God drew us to Christ and drew us to the cross. Let me read for you a few verses from Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 has this magnificent view of the purpose of the triune God from the foundation of time to redeem the people of Christ. Ephesians 1, starting with verse 3. So here's Paul writing to the Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now, if you know the structure of these verses, the Apostle Paul talks about the work of a sovereign God in verses 3 through 6, doing this to the praise of the glory of grace. Then he talks about the work of the Son in redeeming us and saving us, and we find that in verses 6 through 12, done to the praise of his glory. And then the work of the Holy Spirit in drawing us to the cross in Christ and securing our salvation done to the praise of his glory. God's overarching eternal purpose was to save a people in Jesus Christ to the praise of the glory of his grace. And then go to chapter 2, because in chapter 2, we find a personal view of this. So we move from this overarching theme of what God has purposed from eternity and done in time to your personal experience of sovereign grace. Verses 1 through 3 paint a really grim picture of human life. Ephesians 2, 1, and he made you alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And so if you look at your human condition in these verses, you'll find out that you were dead, that you walked in the way of this world, verse 2, that you followed the prince of the power of the air, verse 2, that you acted like the sons of disobedience, verse 2, that you follow the lusts of the flesh and mind, verse 3, and that you were, by nature, children of wrath, verse 3. That is not a good place to be. But the scripture identifies us in our natural selves as being dead in trespasses and sins and being children of wrath. But then notice this tremendous change in verse 4. 
But God, who is rich in mercy. And this is one of these great transition phases, phrases of Scripture. But God, three verses talking about your pitiful estate in Adam, your wretched condition as a sinner, as a child of wrath, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of words, lest anyone should come. And so in writing to the Ephesians, Paul expands on this theme of grace. God's sovereign grace from all eternity and Christian God's particular grace to you. When you were a child of wrath, dead in your sins, without hope, expecting only judgment, God who is gracious and merciful and loving took you, dead one, and raised you up and seated you with Christ and has promised to lavish His love and grace on you throughout all eternity. What a wonderful teaching. A teaching of grace. The Westminster Short Catechism puts it this way, describing effectual calling. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby He convinces us of our sin and misery. He enlightens our mind in the knowledge of Christ. He renews our will. He persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. As we approach the Lord's table, we are reminded that there's no place for pride. There's no place for works. There's no place for our own merits. Rather, as we come to the table, we see visible reminders of God's mercy, God's grace, Christ's sacrifice, and Christ's merit, all of which is ours because of the sovereign grace of our glorious and gracious God. Paul emphasizes the gospel. Paul emphasizes grace. Paul emphasizes the kingdom of God. Verse 25, Acts 20, verse 25. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone, preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Now, I think there's an overlapping theme here, the gospel and grace and the kingdom of God, but Paul specifically said, I went about you preaching the kingdom of God. Indeed, we're told that he did this in Ephesus in Acts 19, verse 8, and he went into the synagogue and spoke 
boldly for about three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the kingdom of God. We know that the book of Acts is dominated by teaching about the kingdom of God. We are told that Jesus, after his resurrection, was with them for 40 days, Acts 1 3, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. The book of Acts closes in Acts 28 with a reference to Paul solemnly testifying of the kingdom of God, verse 23, and for two years preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 28:31. You know that Jesus Christ is the ruler of the nation. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, the ruler of the kings of this earth. We know that he has been given an inheritance of the nations, Psalm 2. We know that he has been seated at the Father's right hand until all of his enemies are subdued, Psalm 110. We know that he has been given all glory and dominion forever, Revelation 1, 4, this teaching that Jesus Christ is King, that the Lord Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, brought conflict with civil rulers. At the time of Jesus' trial, leaders said to Pilate, If you let him go, you are not Caesar's friend, because anyone who makes himself a king is opposed to Caesar. John 19. In Acts 17, verses 16 7, people charged the apostles that they had turned the world upside down and they act contrary to the decrees of Caesar again because they advocated a new king. Jesus Christ is the ruler of the nations, and Jesus Christ is head of the church. Let me read two passages of Scripture that emphasize Christ's headship. Colossians 1. Colossians 1, verses 13 and following. Colossians 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us to the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption for His blood, the forgiveness of sins. And so, first, we teach in the Scripture that God has taken you out of the kingdom of darkness and has moved you into the kingdom of the Son, in whom we have redemption for His blood and the forgiveness. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Ephesians 1, 
verse 20. This is a similar message written to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians 1, verse 20. But you worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion that every name is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he has put all things under his feet and given him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Fourth, look at the gospel, grace, the kingdom, the whole counsel of God, verse 27. Acts 20, verse 27, Paul says, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Paul proclaims a complete and comprehensive message. He taught everything that was helpful in verse 20. In fact, he says in verse 20, he kept back nothing that was helpful. He proclaimed the full counsel of God's word. That is precisely what the church is called to do today. So in the Great Commission, we are told that we would go to all nations, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded. Paul says he doesn't shrink back from teaching the full counsel. He is innocent of the blood of all as he teaches fully from God's word. And I think this reference goes back to Ezekiel 3. In Ezekiel 3, there's a commentary on the watchman or prophet's duty. The watchman is called to proclaim everything that God gives to him. If he fails to do that, the blood of the people is on his head, so he has to proclaim everything that God gives to him. And we are told that the Apostle Paul gave the full message, and sometimes that was a hard message, Acts 20, verse 31, Watch therefore and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul was a faithful watchman, all topical counsel of God, Paul with tears for years warned the people of the things that they have to do. We have a tremendous gift in God's Word. It teaches us about salvation, as we've seen, but it teaches us about doctrine and policy and worship and how to live. Indeed, we are charged with teaching the nations everything that Christ has commanded. We are told to bring every thought captive to Jesus Christ. We have a tremendous repository of truth in God's inner word. And we need that word in our day more than ever because our society is desperate for the word of God. And we should be faithful watchmen, faithful workmen, ones who are willing to proclaim the full riches of God's word to our culture. Let me pose with a 
summary statement applications. First, as we think about this text, hear the gospel. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. Jesus shed his blood at Calvary Christian for your salvation. And the Holy Spirit draws you, Christian, to salvation through repentance and faith. Be thankful for God's grace. Left to ourselves, we would never have responded to the gospel. Scripture tells us that we were dead in trespasses and sins, children of wrath, hard-hearted, but God was merciful, granting repentance, illuminating our hearts, and drawing us to the Savior. Be confident in your king. Jesus Christ is head of the church and is ruler of the kings of earth. Don't be fearful of the news of the day. I know I flip the news and I worry some more because it seems like everything's falling apart. But remember that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Don't be intimidated by Christ's enemies, though there are many. Indeed, Scripture teaches us that Christ executes the office of the king. And maybe I should say that Scripture has summarized it a wonderful catechism question and response that Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Be confident that Christ is your king and he will accomplish all of his purposes. And finally, Learn the full counsel of God. God's full counsel is revealed in His Word. Paul, a faithful watchman, proclaimed it. No one's blood is on His head. And so it's really important for us to receive it and learn it and obey it and to resolve to understand the fullness of the will of God revealed in Scripture. God, our Father, we're thankful for faithful servants who have proclaimed your message. We are thankful for your word, in which we see a word of grace, knowledge of the gospel, and the assurance that Christ is our King. We pray that you would help us to internalize these teachings of Scripture. As we come to the Lord's table, we pray that you would remind us anew what Christ has done to secure our salvation and how we are drawn to come to Christ by faith for the salvation of our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me closing to Psalm 22. Soldier Selection 22C in your maroon songbook.